Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us and those on, uh, watching us on the live stream. Welcome you as well. Uh, this is the year of... This is the year of St. Joseph, uh, declared by Pope Francis uh, right at the beginning of Advent. You know, our liturgical season runs from Advent through the Sunday of Christ the King. So we're in the middle of that right now. And uh, we're excited to be able to offer this event today. I know some of you have been going through or have already completed a consecration to St. Joseph. We have another group that will be starting I believe it's the end of March to end on uh, May 1st, the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker. Next Friday, the Feast of St. Joseph, um, we're having a special Mass at 6 p.m. Uh, here in the church. And following that Mass, we'll, we'll be doing the consecration prayer for those who have been doing the, the, uh, the consecration to St. Joseph uh, program. Whether you're doing it on your own, uh, with the group that's meeting online, uh, you're all welcome to attend uh, the Mass and, and also the consecration enrollment. Let's begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity to come together, to gather in your name, to grow in a deeper knowledge of the man you chose to be the stepfather of your Son. We ask that uh, by learning more about St. Joseph, you would increase our love and devotion for him, that we could see more powerfully the effects of his intercession on our behalf. Give us the gift of your Holy Spirit today to open our hearts and minds to hear what uh, our speaker Mike has to share with us. Fill him, Lord, with your presence as well. We ask this through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So our guest speaker this morning is Mike Aquilina. He's a Catholic author, speaker, poet, and songwriter. Does it all. Uh, he serves as the Executive Vice President at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Uh, contributing editor to Angelus News and uh, has a podcast, Way of the Fathers, which can be found at catholicculture.org. Um, Mike is the author or editor of more than 60 books, so he keeps us busy, uh, including The Fathers of the Church, The Mass of the Early Christians, and Angels of God. He has co-hosted 11 series on EWTN and hosted two documentaries. Uh, Mike also wrote the companion volumes to the NBC series, miniseries AD, The Bible Continues, and the MGM remake of the movie Ben-Hur in 2016. His book, A History of the Catholic Church and 100 Objects, earned an honorable mention at the 2018 Catholic Press Association Awards. He's the editor of Reclaiming Catholic History series. He's published hundreds of articles, essays, and reviews in periodicals such as First Things, Crisis, the National Catholic Register, The Priest, Columbia, and Our Sunday Visitor. Uh, Mike previously served as the editor of New Covenant Magazine and the Pittsburgh Catholic. Uh, one great thing about Mike is he's from my hometown of Pittsburgh, so you can't go wrong with that. Uh, he's received honors from the Catholic Press Association, including Best Magazine for the New Covenant during his editorship and Best Book in the category of uh, Biography. 
Uh, he lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with his wife, Terry, and they have six children. He has books out there on the table. Uh, we will have an intermission between his two talks. So you're welcome to peruse those books. One I would recommend is St. Joseph and His World, which, of course, we'll be speaking about today, and we've got plenty of copies out there. So please welcome Mike Aquilina. Thanks, Tom. One thing I discovered just now is that whenever I turn on my microphone, it turns off his microphone. So I, 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 I was tempted for just a moment to have a lot of fun with that, but I, I resisted that temptation. Okay, now that we've figured that out. Um, well, I'll be speaking about St. Joseph, great patriarch of the Holy Family and of our homes, um, but I, I'd like to begin by going to his, his wife, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, all right? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I have to admit from the start that there's something absolutely goofy about taking the microphone and dedicating two long talks to a man who left us not a single record of a spoken word. Now, the great difficulty in sketching the character of St. Joseph is that Scripture never once shows him speaking. In the Gospels, he never says yes or no. He never makes a nod or a gesture. And not only is he never shown to speak, the Gospels never show a single human being speaking to him, not even his wife or his son. You know, other saints are known for what they say. St. John Chrysostom means, his, his nickname means golden mouth. It's all about what he spoke. He had a lot to say. And St. Peter of Ravenna is known as Peter Chrysologus, golden words. He occupied a bully pulpit preaching to the imperial court, and he made the most of it. But Joseph is most accurately described in one of his biographies, as Joseph the Silent, and in another biography, as the shadow of the father. A shadow doesn't make any noise, right? In all the Gospels, no humans speak to him. No humans. But four times, an angel speaks to him. Christian tradition makes much of Mary's Annunciation. The church commemorates it by a feast day on March 25th. And we even de dedicate a daily prayer to it, the Angelus, the angel prayer. We pray it at noontime. But Joseph's annunciations are also worthy of scrutiny, certainly for what they reveal about him, but also for what they reveal about angels. In fact, the Gospels present almost every episode in Joseph's life as an encounter with an angel. That's how we see them. The first occurs shortly after he discovered that Mary was pregnant, and he knew that he could not be the baby's father. After what must have been an anguished time, whether it was hours or days, we don't know, he decides, he resolves to divorce her quietly. When he finally fell asleep after deliberation and prayer, he must have been exhausted. Here's what St. Matthew says. But as he considered this, 
Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. An angel gave Joseph information he could not otherwise have figured out. It was a true revelation. And he gave him clear instruction about what he was to do. He was to go ahead with the marriage and stay in the marriage. He was to name the child not according to any of the customs of his time. The baby would not be named for his father or his grandfather, but rather for his mission. He would be called Jesus, Yeshua, which means God is salvation. God saves. It was Joseph's right to name the child, but it was an angel who delivered the right name to Joseph. This is no small contribution. Every Christian throughout history has owed that angel an incalculable debt because every time we call upon Jesus in prayer, we call upon a name revealed by that angel. The angel made his second appearance to Joseph after the child was born. And here it is. Now when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there till I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. The second appearance is significant for many reasons. It shows once again that the angel served Joseph as a guide, telling him what to do, where to go, but also as a guardian. Joseph received heavenly help in figuring out what to do next, but he also got a stern warning about what he must avoid and what he must flee. What did he learn? He learned that the most powerful man in his world the mad and cruel King Herod, was targeting the baby Jesus for destruction. The most powerful man in his world who packed the power of a military. Herod had an army at his disposal. He had absolute authority over every village and every desert spot where Joseph might choose to hide. Massacres were a hallmark of Herod's reign. He killed a large number of the priests, at the Jerusalem temple. On another bad day, he killed more than 300 of his military officers. He killed his favorite wife, his mother-in-law, two of his sons, and countless others. He wouldn't think twice about killing this insignificant family from the countryside. So this revelation that Joseph received was serious business. And how else could a poor man like Joseph have known it? How else could he have discovered the danger? He was a carpenter, a commoner, and he didn't frequent the parties in Herod's palace. He didn't have friends at court. But heaven made sure that Joseph was at no disadvantage. In his second visit from an angel, Joseph was told what to do, where to go, and he acted promptly. After this apparition, he moved his family immediately to Egypt. The third angelic visit to St. Joseph came a year or two years later. 
It's unclear. And here's how St. Matthew tells it. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Here again, the angel appeared as guardian and guide, bringing the Holy Family safely home to the Holy Land. Because the Holy Land was awaiting its Messiah, its deliverer and redeemer. It had been waiting for hundreds of years. And the task of this third angel visit continued in a fourth angel visit, which occurred while Joseph was leading the family on their return journey. St. Matthew says, But when Joseph heard that Archelaus reigned over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Only an angel would know which of Herod's sons was least likely to continue the old man's vendettas. Now Joseph knew too. So one last time the Holy Family eluded danger thanks to a warning from Joseph's guardian angel, a warning given in a dream. Now, those few scenes are important because they tell us almost everything we know about the man whom God chose to watch over his only son. They tell us almost everything we know about the hero the gospel praises as a just man which is the highest compliment you could have received in that society. He was a just man. He lived by the law. He was righteous. Those few details tell us almost everything we know about St. Joseph. And what we know about him is that he was intensely devoted to the holy angels. He listened to them. He followed through on their instructions. By the time he had reached adulthood, he was accustomed to their promptings. Think about it. The Gospels nowhere register his surprise at the appearance of an angel. Nowhere. He shows none of the fright that we see in the stories of the Old Testament prophets, like Balaam and Daniel. Remember what those guys did when they got an angel visit? Bam! They hit the floor. Daniel fell unconscious. They were scared. But Joseph shows a calm readiness. You know, he was unafraid. Like the prophets, he was open to the counsel of the angels. Even when he had firmly decided upon a course of action, he was willing to drop all his plans suddenly simply because of the prompting of his angel. And that calm readiness is impressive. And it's unusual even among the heroes in Israel's history. I think it speaks volumes about Joseph's previous habits of prayer. You see, devotion to the angels was common in his time. We see it much in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels. It's in the Acts of the Apostles. It's in the Epistles, and especially in the book of Revelation, which is a book that's saturated with the appearances of angels. St. Luke speaks of the general importance of the angels by letting us know that the Sadducees, a relatively small group, were the only Jews who did not believe in angels, did not have this devotion to the holy angels. But even outside the Bible, there's abundant evidence for 
ancient Israel's devotion. If you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, you'll see that an important sect of first century Jews was absolutely preoccupied with the heavenly spirits. The sect that produced the scrolls, the Essenes, they were preparing themselves for a world war in which they believed that they would work with the holy angels against the fallen angels for the recovery of the Holy Land and the restoration of God's law. They expected the battle to be bloody, but in the end they would prevail. So, to that end, they had to memorize the names of the holy angels so they would know the, the, the spirits they were dealing with. And when they worshipped the Essenes, they believed that they were worshipping together with invisible, innumerable hosts of angels. We still believe this today as Catholics. They looked especially to the help of the Archangel Michael, again, just like we do today. They were instructed to exalt the authority of St. Michael the Archangel. And in one of their liturgies, they prayed, Today is God's appointed time to subdue and humiliate the prince of the realm of wickedness. God will send support to the company of his redeemed by the power of the majestic angel, Michael. This could be a Catholic prayer today. It was already resounding in Jewish communities in the time of St. Joseph. Devotion to the angels was important not only to the Essenes, but to many Jewish authors whose works have survived from those days. It stands in continuity with the scriptures Joseph heard in the synagogue of Nazareth. There were many of the same scriptures we read at Mass. The first of them was the book of Genesis, which begins with the creation of the heavens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, what does that mean? St. Augustine tells us that it means the realm of the angels, the spirits, that's heaven, and the earth, the realm of matter, the material world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The ancient Hebrews and the, and the early church fathers understood it that way. And then God said, let there be light. And once again, the early Christians, St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, tell us that light in this instance does not mean the sun. That was created later in the narrative. It doesn't mean the moon or the stars. Again, those came on a later day. When God said, let there be light, he meant the spiritual lights of the angels. They're referred to as the lights in the heavens throughout the rest of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And God separated the light from the darkness. What does that mean? That he tested the angels and found some of them faithful and some of them wicked. Some of them chose for a life apart from God. Some of them fell. And one of those wicked angels, in fact, took the form of a serpent in order to tempt Adam and Eve. The serpent in the Genesis story was a fallen angel. And when God expelled the primal couple, he sent other spirits, pure spirits, cherubim, to be there at the gate with a flaming sword and looking for all the world like they weren't afraid to use it. 
We're just three chapters into the first book of the Bible, and we see a narrative that is full of the holy angels, saturated with their presence. The presence of the angels continues in the time of the patriarchs. An angel stayed the hand of Abraham when he went to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac, his son. The patriarch Jacob wrestled with an angel and fought his battles alongside an army of angels. And one day, Jacob rested his head on a stone, and he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jacob was given a vision of what was happening all the time in creation. This easy traffic between heaven and earth, Jacob could see it with his eyes. And he passed that tradition down among his people. And it's the tradition that Joseph inherited through the liturgy of the synagogue, the liturgy of the temple, the liturgies of the feast days. Angels were everywhere in the Hebrew scriptures. They were in the law, the prophets, the psalms, the histories. They were mentioned in the rituals celebrated on the feasts at the temples. And they abounded in the popular prayers of ordinary Jews like Joseph. So Joseph lived as his ancestors had lived, in a world saturated with angels. Because he was devout, because he was a just man, he followed the religious traditions of his ancestors. He attended the customary services. He said the prayers that he had been taught. And because of these habits, he was habituated. He, he was used to attention to the angels. He was used to their presence and their activity. He was sensitive to it. He knew their company and he knew their help. Now modern readers have a tendency to reduce the lives of biblical figures to the scenes that are preserved in sacred scripture. If we do this with Joseph, however, if we reduce him to just those few scenes with angels, we might conclude that he was a really unusual man. We might think that his life was more like an action movie, but with even less talk and even more special effects. He was always, it seems, in the midst of, of great danger or high drama or distant travel or some deep adventure. And those wild episodes were surely definitive for his life but they probably occupied just a few days in total. And he was married for thousands of days. Unfortunately, the gospel doesn't give us any close-up of his ordinary moments. He's always in a crisis when we see him in the gospels. Tradition refers to those days as the hidden life of the Holy Family, those days that we don't see. And we're encouraged by the saints and by the popes to meditate on them. Because the Gospels don't leave us entirely in the dark. What the evangelists reveal is that Joseph's reputation did not rest on his adventures. They did not rest on his extraordinary opportunities in life. So apparently he didn't talk about them much. When his neighbors thought about him at all, if they thought about him at all, they referred to him simply as the carpenter, 
Not the guy who traveled to Egypt. Not the man who was visited by Persian magicians. Not the mortal enemy of loathsome Herod who brought him down, who defeated Herod. He was simply the carpenter. And Jesus was simply the carpenter's son. Though God had chosen this man for the greatest mission ever, he was simply the carpenter. He was simply an ordinary Joe. And this is a supremely important fact. He was no less ordinary for the fact that he was close to the angels. Joseph was so good at devotion to the angels that theologians in later times referred to him as the angelic man. And as the angelic man, he serves as a model for us. They called him that for two reasons. First of all, and obviously, it's because he had four close encounters with an angel, had four vivid encounters with an angel in his lifetime that we know about. And that's four more than most of us ever have. But there's another reason why he was angelic. He was angelic, these theologians say, because he received in abundance the particular gifts of all the pure spirits in heaven. All of them. In one man. Not even an angel. This argument is developed most fully in the work of Hieronimo Gracian. He's a 16th century Carmelite, and he's best known as the spiritual director of St. Teresa of Avila. In the pages of the Bible, Gracian identifies the nine distinct orders of pure spirits. Angels, archangels, principalities, virtues, powers, dominions, thrones, cherubim, and seraphim. You recognize all these names because many of them are used in the prayers of the Mass. We invoke them. Each grouping has its particular way of serving God, a particular angelic way. And yet, Gracian says, Joseph managed to fulfill the requirements of each and every group in the heavens. Like the angels, Joseph served as a messenger between heaven and the Holy Family, and then as the family's guide and protector. Like the archangels, Joseph was given a task of utmost gravity. His combat required direct engagement with evil. Like the principalities, Joseph was given authority over the household of the Holy Family, the household of God. And so Gracian continues through all the ranks, concluding finally with the cherubim and the seraphim. As the cherubim flanked the seat of Almighty God on the Ark of the Covenant, as they flanked the gates of the Garden of Eden, so Joseph and Mary flanked the earthly throne of the King of Kings. Their house was like the Ark of the Covenant. And like the seraphim in heaven, Joseph burned with an ardent love as he lived in the earthly court of Almighty God. The seraphim in heaven cry, Holy, holy, holy. We see that in the book of Isaiah. We see it in the book of Revelation. And holy indeed is the name given by tradition to Joseph's family, the holy family. By comparing Joseph to each of the ranks of pure spirits, Father Gracian justifies the title angelic man for Joseph of Nazareth. 
Joseph surpassed all the orders of heaven in his excellence. He was nearer to God and served him more closely and constantly than even the seraphim. For this reason, Joseph received such close attention from the angels themselves. In heaven, he was already seen as a prince. Father Gracian goes a step further than that. He wonders aloud, as many theologians had before him, whether Jesus had a guardian angel. Did Jesus have a guardian angel? How many think yes? How many think no? Well, this was debated by theologians for the centuries leading up to Father Gracian. This is not the teaching of the church, but it's the speculation of theologians. And Father Gracian concluded that Jesus did not have a guardian angel, but that St. Joseph was appointed guardian angel for him during those early years of his life. It's a remarkable thought to have that he was the angelic man so that he could be guard of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords through all of his earthly days. It's a frightening thought, too, (laughs) that you have this great responsibility And yet, you're not an angel. You're a mere mortal. This is the calling that Joseph received. And in heaven, for that, he was already seen as a prince. Yet again, he was no less ordinary for all that. He was no less a working man. He was no less and no more than the carpenter. Gracian's analysis has implications not only for Joseph's life, but also for yours and Think about it. Through baptism, you and I have been given a place in the divine household. We've been made part of the holy family. And we've been called to share a table with Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Like Joseph, you and I are able to ser- serve Jesus in close proximity, even closer than the angels. We receive Jesus into our bodies. We are made one with him in holy communion. It doesn't get any closer than that. And the angels are said to envy this about the gifts we have received. Like Joseph, all of us can be called angelic as we bear Jesus sacramentally and carry his real presence out into the world, a world that still has its Herods, who are hostile to the Lord. You know, St. Joseph was the guardian who took him out and took care of him, watched over him. We receive Jesus and are one with him in Holy Communion. We're taking him out into the hostile world. We're one with him. We're manifesting him to the world, just as Joseph did. God calls you and me, as he called Joseph to be his messengers and guardians, his power and his voice, his contemplatives in the middle of this city in central Indiana. God wants us to cooperate with his angels in the middle of our neighborhoods and schools and workplaces right here where we are. And the angels work best with the people they know best, the people with whom they have a relationship It's just like at work. You work most smoothly, most effectively, most efficiently with the people you know best. 
You have your ways of communication, a lot of them nonverbal. When the boss says something ridiculous, you raise your eyebrow, your buddy sees it, okay, and, and knows what you're talking about. The angels want to have that kind of relationship with us. They're going to work best with the people who have a habit of asking for their help, the people who greet them and thank them, because everything in heaven works on the principle of freedom. Heaven will not, never violate your dignity. Heaven will always honor your freedom. And so it's necessary for consent to be there if they're going to work in your life in an active way. They may clear obstacles for you that they see in the way, but they can't work that closely with you unless you consent. And you consent through your devotion to the holy angels. Your mother probably taught you the prayer if you were raised Catholic. Angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love entrusts me here, ever this day be at my side to light and guard, to rule and guide. That's a great way of consenting to the angels' work, giving them permission to act in your life. Because again, they won't violate your freedom. All they need is hello. What are the other ways we say hello? How do we begin? You know, probably the best advice I've ever received in the confessional was from a guy who was my confessor three decades ago. I complained to him about my rebellious oldest child, my son. And he asked me very simply if I had been praying to the boy's guardian angel. I had to admit that I had not. In fact, I had never even heard of that practice. He suggested that I try it. He said that every time my son walked into the room, I should quietly, in my heart, greet his guardian angel, even before I greeted my son. I tried it. And I found that it really did change our relationship. I tried it with my coworkers. I tried it with my wife. And in every situation, it seemed to improve my relationships. Why is that? Well, the angels want what's best for us. And what does angel mean? What does angelos mean? It means messenger. The angels are all about communication. They're all about getting the message across, even between men and women. Even though men are, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, the angels can speak both Martian and Venusian and translate for us. They do this. I've experienced it. The guardian angels want what's best for us, again, and they're experts in communication. They'll help us when we go to them. In the middle of our daily life, God wants us to be close to the angels, attentive to the angels, and alert to their promptings. It's not just for monks or special people. It's for us as it was for St. Joseph. We should be working with the angels as intimately as St. Joseph was. We may not see visions or hear voices. We may not have our dreams disrupted the way he did. But I assure you, we'll see a difference. We'll know their guidance. It's true in times of crisis and danger. It's true when we face opposition or even hostility. We should call upon our own guardian angels in those moments, and we should call upon the guardian angels of those who oppose us. 
But it's also true, and maybe especially true, when times seem normal and quiet and humdrum. We should call upon the guardian angels to guide us in those everyday interactions because those are the moments we'll be judged by. We might have fantasies about doing something heroic or doing something heroic in service of the Lord, but that will, be, that will not be the primary stuff of our judgment when we, when we appeal to the throne of mercy. The stuff of our judgment will be the stuff we did day in and day out in our primary vocation as family members, as children of our parents, as grandchildren of our grandparents, as brother or sister to our siblings, as parents of our children, and as grandparents to our grandchildren. How do we live with those closest kin? How do we work with our co-workers? Well, the angels want us to live better and communicate better with all the people who are closest to us. And they're ready and able to do something about it. Remember, St. Joseph was the ordinary worker, the quiet guy next door. And yet he was the angelic one. Let future generations say the same thing about you and me. For the ministry of the angels and for the example of St. Joseph, let's give glory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.